are here in the 11FS office in WeWork Allgate London for episode 74 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Bitmain might be stealing your power, Amber Balde says don't force public blockchain down enterprise throats, and Spankchain making a difference for cam girls. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and with not a Colin or a failed insight, I am once again quite pleased to be joined by my friend and co-host, Sarah Feenan. Long time no see. How have you been? I've been very well, thank you, Simon. How have you? I'm, you know, I'm all right. I'm, uh, I'm struggled to do the opening read today, but once I got through that, I'm surviving. <laughs> I'm definitely better than the weather in the UK at the moment. Jeez. It's, it's awful. Dark by three today. Lovely. What is this darkness about? It's, mm. it's like crypto winter is here and real winter is here. At the same time, winter is coming and here it is. Ugh, I, I feel like I need to go up to the wall and hang out in a big wall warm jacket and do you know what i feel like i need to do i need to go to the philippines for two weeks which is where i'll be from saturday oh wow so you're escaping the bifrost yeah mm, smart move all right let's get on to the first story um comes from news.bitcoin.com and bitfinex have raised their fiat withdrawal fee and have also announced a new hardware wallet so the Hong Kong-based cryptocurrency exchange now charges at least 60 us dollars or 60 euros or 0.1% of the withdrawn amount. I think it's 0.1% if it's higher than 60, right? So if, yep. so if you're uh, withdrawing a massive amount. Users who want 24-hour money transactions uh, on working days will have to pay the 1% fee. The minimum withdrawal fee for fiat funds at Bitfinex used to be just $20. Interesting timing in the most bearish of bearish markets. We are, what, 82 83% down from the all-time high as mm -hmm. we sit here. Um, no surprises that they're looking for new revenue lines when their percentage fees on the asset being traded. You know, if you were taking 0.01%, 0 0.1%, 0 0.2%, 0.10% of mm. your 10 points out of the previous trades, but the trading in US dollar amounts has gone down by 2, 3, 4x um, in terms of its actual value. Yep. They need more revenue. I mean, is this a surprise? Not really. I don't think it's a surprise uh, in terms of looking at increasing the relative portion of their revenue per trade, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you say, this time last year, they were looking at a, a, a different kettle of fish, really. Um, it's also interesting that it's Bitfinex. They've come up time and time again. They've been beleaguered with their connection with Tether. Um, you know, there's also sort of recent speculation in the last couple of months about there being delayed withdrawals as well from the exchange. And these are indeed just speculation. Um, but, but it makes people worry about uh, solvency, right? Yes. Yeah. That, that's the big thing. Uh, less trading volume equals less commissions, need to up the other revenue get that uh there's there's a question about making it harder with to withdraw and making you want to do it less there's a sort of trying to make it more captive in terms of uh the liquidity but then the the kind of the real piece there of uh the solvency questions this doesn't this doesn't help with that but it, to me it just seems like somebody covering a revenue gap i don't think there's a whole lot more but set against the context of the bear market do you think we'll see more people doing this sort of thing in the future well, potentially. I mean, if, if Bitfinex have already set precedent to raise the fees for withdrawal, then mm. potentially we might see other exchanges do that too. Uh, also, the question around should you be keeping funds on exchanges anyway? Mm -hmm. mm. If you're leaving all your funds in exchanges, you're subject to the risk of the uh, sort of cybersecurity capabilities of that exchange. And Indeed. we've seen several exchanges getting hacked. 
over the years. Indeedy. All right, next story comes from Coindesk.com. Uh, Bitmain faces a $5 million lawsuit over alleged unauthorized crypto mining. So um, it's the lead plaintiff who is a Los Angeles County resident uh, who is called Gore Gevokian. Great it's a, name. It's a cool name. That sounds like a supervillain. Yeah. Gore, what a name you've got there. Um <laughs> Uh, alleging that the firm's devices used customers' resources to mine cryptos for its own benefit prior to full setup. Yeah. Interesting allegation. Uh, the complaint read that Bitmain's ASIC devices are pre-configured to use its customers' electricity to generate cryptocurrency for the benefit of Bitmain rather than its customers. The document indicates that there are more than 100 class members involved in the action and that the aggregate amount under debate exceeds $5 million exclusive of interest fees and costs. Members are seeking full restitution of expenses incurred as a result of Bitmain's unfair and deceptive practices. Whew. Mm. I mean, it's a heck of an allegation. It's the first I've heard of something like this, um, frankly. But, uh, I mean, w the stories and the bad news and the dodgy dealings continue thematically. Uh, and if this were true, my God, um, you know, to have uh, 100 people in a class lawsuit is not nothing. So you've got to think there's some evidence here that people are going to take seriously. Yeah, 100 people is quite a lot, actually. And and if they're looking around January last year, obviously, as we've mentioned, we don't want to talk about the price. It's the least interesting part of blockchain and crypto, etc. But it's, again, a very different ball, ball game from what I imagine we'll see in January of next year. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there was there's potentially a couple of weeks. So it's been alleged in between the time when the ASIC... Uh, mining device was purchased and the full setup, yes. i.e. it was connected to the, the, the user's um, accounts. Uh, and during that time, those ASIC rigs were being used to mine Bitcoin for Bitmain is the allegation. Yes. Including the electricity costs that it takes. Yes. As well. Which, which I think is, is astonishing uh, that you would go and sell some equipment that helps somebody mine Bitcoin. And whilst somebody has to configure that equipment, that equipment is also using electricity to mine Bitcoin for your own benefit. Mm, I mean, it feels so the allegation goes. Uh, if if that is true, it's cheeky. It is uh, cheeky. <laughs> yes, <laughs> cheeky is one word for it. For to, to say the least. Uh, and if it's not true, what's the source of the lawsuit? Has somebody just misunderstood the power consumption here, or like how could this? Like, uh, it, it's an interesting one to speculate on, and and it mm. sort of speaks to the challenges with the new business model that mining presented. Um, if you are going to run a decentralized network, you need uh, an incentive for people to continue to run that network and maintain it faithfully. Mining, of course, as we know, is how Bitcoin solves that. Interesting then that there are ways to game that and there are these fringe cases that just keep cropping up and it doesn't help the perception of cryptocurrency more no, broadly. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, it, interesting the timing as well around this. There's, I wonder when this allegation was made and whether, um, I mean, this is speculation again, of course, it all is because we haven't seen the alleged lawsuit, but... Uh, is this potentially a play for people to recoup some of their uh, the differential between the cost of mining and actually the prices now? Well, yeah, like, ah, uh, yeah, don't that's know. interesting timing-wise. And also timing-wise, this follows their filing for IPO. Um, so, you know, Bitmain are in a position where they may have more cash and um, they, they may be seen as, a, as an interesting target for uh, allegations. So uh, it really depends. You can see this from all sides, uh, speculation on all sides. The, the, the allegations are on all sides. We'll We'll watch this one, I, I'm sure, from uh, with, with a lot of popcorn. 
interesting nonetheless. All right, uh, next story again comes from Coindesk uh, Noel H. And shout out Noel, uh, who's, of course, been on this podcast many times. Uh, the headline reads, the SEC's recent rulings are more about exchanges than ICOs. And I can hear that almost in Noel's voice. Uh, so earlier this month, an SEC director revealed that the agency plans to release plain English guidance for when a token is and is not a security, which I think is compelling. Um, I think if there's one thing the market's been asking for is like make it really easy. Um, so that's that's a heck of a promise from a regulator. An important detail is that the SEC has not yet prosecuted an exchange Ether Delta was not the subject of the settlement the founder was. It will, therefore, be interesting to see what information comes to light in the first case brought against a trading platform for failure to register and whether we will see crypto exchanges preempting the scrutiny by voluntarily doing so. And I think we have seen a scramble for registration sort of over the last 12 months in, in some parts of the world. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see yeah, what does happen next? Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the gradual ramping up of, uh, you know, getting people to register with no fine and, mm -hmm. and, a, and a violation, getting people to register with a fine, uh, getting people to register with a slightly larger fine. It feels like the the temperature is, you know, the boiling of the frog has started to happen, right? Yep. The, the, yep. There's a market crash at the same time as the fines are coming in. Uh, wow, what a bear market. Yeah, indeed. Mm. And, uh, there are. <laughs> <laughs> that was the bear roaring year of the bear coming up um, it's, it is an interesting one I think and to go after the exchanges which are um, centralised but also the middle players in this uh, who, uh, whilst you know providing liquidity and price discovery uh, they all are also sitting in the middle of what is effectively a peer-to-peer -peer market peer-to-peer -peer network and peer-to-peer value transfer. So the exchanges are not issuing the tokens, but they do they do list these tokens and sometimes they list them with a, a rather large fee as well. So it's it's it is really a very interesting ecosystem and it's quite telling, I think, what the SEC are picking off first. It's interesting that the issuer of the token is not the first place to start. Yep. The people who then uh, list that token and uh, make the most profit off it trading are squarely in the sites, um, at least according to what Noel is saying. And, and I think that sort of speaks to maybe a recognition that, uh, you know, if you read between the lines of what, well, not between the lines, but the CFTC came out and said developers might be liable for the code they write. Yeah. Uh, what you might see in the future, and I'm speculating here, is developers have to do so under sort of some legal structure in which the individual is less liable and a legal entity takes that kind of hit on their behalf, a legal person uh, that, that's structured, and then there's peer review and code that sits around that. But also, if exchanges have been made to fall in line, and really what we're talking about is trading venues, not licensed exchanges, then does that create better market structure? Are we now putting this, the crypto through the ringer and is it really being tested so that the things that survive are strong? Or is it this the death rattle and it finally kills it? It's not the death rattle, is it? Come on. <laughs> I want it to be dramatic. <laughs> Coming. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. All right. Next story comes from Coindesk.com. Um, and this one comes from uh, Amber Baldick. And I, I like this headline. Don't force public blockchains down the uh, throats of enterprises. Amber thinks it's too soon for enterprise to meet open decentralized blockchains. Um, and 
She says, we want to build those bridges out to the public networks, but I don't think you get there by shoving those chains down enterprises' throats before those enterprises are ready. She believes a gradual process of bridge building between public chains and the private kind is needed. She also says that until there's a credible on-chain privacy or very well-designed privacy-preserving architecture for enterprise, uh, it's all a bit premature. Uh, I think it's pretty interesting that you have somebody here who's arguably the veteran of kind of coming out of a large bank, having uh, done a lot of the stuff uh, around Quorum, having worked firsthand in financial markets for you know 10 plus years, really great level of experience. I think this is an eminently sensible point. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing a lot of work with the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance and, and certainly privacy and, and scalability, which is another point that she mentions in this article or this interview. Uh, those are certainly big, big um, issues and areas of atten attention to be solved. Uh, same with the public space as well. Uh, you know, you see with Ethereum, we've got um, Serenity Ethereum 2.0 coming down the line, which really does focus on uh, scalability. But enterprises also, they need privacy. And with GDPR and regulations such as that coming down the line as well, we do need to have some level of confidentiality for these transactions. Ethereum's, what, four years old at a push, maybe mm. three years old. Um, would you expect a toddler to be enterprise grade? <laughs> I mean, it, there aren't many enterprise no. grade toddlers out there. No, um, And not. if there are, they're bloody smart. Um, and I'm sure there are probably some enterprise grade toddlers that would do better than, than certain CEOs. But that aside, um, there's probably something to be said for the fact that the public chains have a long way to go. They're super interesting. But if you listen to many of the people building them, they will freely admit to how early they are and to how much needs to be done. They are uh, only 1% finished after all. But then there's something that enterprise can do now. There are some very specific use cases where uh, the existing kind of blockchain tech makes sense, but it's a slither. It's a, it's a you know it's some really high performance sort of post trade stuff where I need to know what I see is the same as what you see. That type of stuff. Yes, you can. I think you can use that today, but I really think that the this story is still very much to come and in front of us. Yeah, for sure, and especially if we're talking about enterprise who are looking at reducing their overheads and you know in, in post trade and reconciliation those. These are a great cost to enterprises at the moment. Um, but I, I mean, if we think of blockchain technology as in the future a general purpose technology, then we're going to need to have a lot of this maturity, technologically speaking, the way we think about it and the associated business models and economic mechanisms and the security around that. There's, there's still work to be done. And there's a great deal of thinking going on both in the public space and the enterprise space. So, you know, in the future, Yes, perhaps those will be all part of the same ecosystem and there'll be various different uh, technological solutions to compartmentalize or yeah. shard these things. Um, it's almost like it, it's a technology that peaked way too soon. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like uh, at three years old, it became a multi-billionaire and then, oh, wait, it's not really ready for prime time yet. So we need to we need to pull this back. Um, but actually, if you're an enterprise and you're looking at the space, you know, if you go back to those requirements, what enterprise wants, what enterprise needs, whatever makes enterprise happy, that's um, that's exactly what you should be thinking about. Um, so those requirements are really critical. Um, and I think that... Um, 
if you have the use case, if you've figured out, like you see a lot in trade finance now, you see a little bit in identity, you see quite a lot in post-trade with ASX, you see uh, a lot being done uh, by our sponsors, R3, by yourselves, by others, to, to bring these use cases to light. But much like the early implementations on Java were using Java 1.0 um, and they were used in a small way, it's not till Java 3, 4 that the thing really starts to become stable and mature. But now Java and Enterprise is everywhere. Same with Linux. Early days of Linux, it's an enthusiast thing. Enterprises were clearly playing around with it, but it was an enthusiast thing. I was speaking to uh, this chief information officer of a large uh global uh, exchange that shall remain nameless. And they were a veteran of having brought Linux into uh, kind of financial services, sort of, I think it was about you know, the early days of Linux, so about 20, 20 years ago, maybe a bit more. And back then there were so many distributions, it wasn't clear who you worked with. And if you moved too early, you had to support like 10 different versions because mm. one version was really good at this, another version was really good at that, and another version was really good at the other thing. Now it's pretty much Red Hat. Like if you're an enterprise, you're Red Hat. You're a Red Hat shop. It, it, it's crystallized around that one distribution. And Red Hat has taken on many of the best features from um, Debian and Ubuntu and wherever else. But Ubuntu is still used by enthusiasts. I suspect we might see the same thing play out here where uh, these open source uh, crypto networks develop their niches and then grow and become strong. But the time horizon here is not two years. No, no, potentially not. And I think there's sort of two angles to it as well. There's the enterprises of today and the enterprises of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at what the you know top ten on the whatever index, by market cap, yeah, by market cap, sort of ten, fifteen years ago, none of them are the same today. So, and there's these different business models that have emerged as well. And I sort of always say and, and will repeat that it's not the technology on its own in a silo that changes things. It's the business models, the way they're used, and it generally works best when it's actually mapped to what the technology topology is. Completely. Uh, I think if you've got a clear understanding of your use case, you can use this stuff today. Um, but actually, it, be warned, there are challenges and it's difficult. Uh, and unless you've got, uh, you know, there's, as Rich Crook likes to say, there's only so much fun you can have with your own blockchain. Uh, <laughs> the tools oh, will Rick. get better. Um, and as Amber says on Clover, right, that it, what she's really doing with Clover is focusing on building the tools. Because unless you're one of the one percent of businesses that can afford people to come up with the use case, that can coordinate all of your market competitors, that can build the really cutting edge code, um, then the tools just aren't there. And what yeah. um, what Clover's designed to do is create reusable components that lower the barrier to entry um, who, for people who've not been able to really explore what it's about. And if you're interested, uh, episode 50 of Blockchain Insider, we did talk to Amber, um, and she even had time to dissect that week's blockchain and crypto news. And uh, unsurprisingly, she was awesome. <laughs> Uh, shout out. All right. Uh, this episode uh, is brought to you by R3 Blockchain. It's not just for financial services. Tons of industries can reap major benefits. Insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Uh, discover the potential of blockchain for your business with R3's quarter platform. R3's quarter platform offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus, plus includes the mission-critical features that every complex business needs, including the world's only blockchain application firewall. The quarter platform, uh, blockchain for every business in every industry. Head over to r3.com for more info. Um, and shout out, of course, to Richard Brown, who I stole the, I know what uh, I see as the same as what you see phrase from. So shout out, Richard. Open source phrasing. 
Indeed. Um, we love a bit of Richard Brown. All right, next story comes from CNBC. Uh, overstock stock surges 26% after the CEO says it will sell retail business by February to focus on crypto. Of course, CEO of Overstock, Patrick Byrne, plans to sell the retail arm of Overstock by February. Uh, and of course, Patrick Byrne is also uh, CEO of T0, um, a trading system that hasn't launched commercially, but it's, it, it is burning some cash. Um, Byrne says, I don't care whether T0 is losing $2 million a month. We think we've got cold fusion on the blockchain side. Okay. Um, I wonder if that uh, that is relief from overstock investors, or if it's uh, if it's sort of just this thing's coming to sale and people are seeing value in, in when it is sold. Yeah, I'm not sure because that was a that was a narrative, wasn't it, uh, last year or potentially the beginning of this year? If you put blockchain in the title of mm. your company, then you would see a surge in share price. But I don't know if that's the same narrative that fits in quite as well in the crypto winter. Uh, well, and I think that it's this. you could argue this is the opposite narrative, that moving away from blockchain makes Overstock stronger. But actually, is it moving away from the CEO that's a true believer in blockchain and crypto, making Overstock more valuable? Or is it just that Overstock may be sold, therefore, uh, whenever something gets sold, potentially, you know, the buyer tends to pay more than going rate for it. They're looking to buy future growth. Therefore, you know, you just see a bump in the price as a direct result. Uh, it could be as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, it is down 66% this year anyway. So but, it's gone up a bit, it's gone down a bit. It's a bit like crypto prices really, isn't it? T-Zero has been in this uh, in this interesting space for a little while, though. They've been looking to be one of the regulated securities token offerers. Um, they've been, you know, they're kind of one of the platforms looking to really play in tokenization of everything. Uh, them with Harbor and Templum are always the three I kind of bring up as the use case of, you know, what kind of, what phoenix rises from the ashes of crypto. And I think um, Maya Zahavi calls it um, Capital Markets 2.0. What does it look like if you tokenize all the things? Instead of trying to move assets around the world? Can you immobilize them and start to tokenize them? What does that look like and what does that mean for financial services? And I look at companies like T0 as being, you know, kind of really playing in that space. So, you know, maybe Patrick's onto something. Well, maybe he is because he founded Overstock in 1999 anyway. So this isn't the first technological revolution to add to the dramatism um, that he's lived through. So maybe this is actually quite a prescient pivot. Often the way, I mean, um, people uh, who tend to be really, really early uh, are often accused of being nuts and kind of uh, having lost it. But First they laugh at you. Yeah, exactly. Alrighty, well, we wish him well because um, T0 definitely does look promising and uh, let's move on. All right, next story comes from Yahoo Finance and uh, Ohio appears to be the first US state to accept Bitcoin for taxes. Uh, the move, of course, initially applies only to businesses with plans to extend the offering to individual taxpayers in the future. The payments are reportedly set to be uh, processed via crypto payment service BitPay. Um, State Treasurer Josh Mandel, who told reporters uh, he is looking to plant a flag for Ohio in terms of cryptocurrency adoption. So are we all moving to Ohio? Yeah, yeah, I've already got my ticket. Yeah, okay. Um, I hear Cincinnati's nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, It's interesting, isn't it? That's that's quite a strong statement. Uh, It's not not the first US state to talk about um, taxes being paid in Bitcoin. There was Arizona and Georgia before that, but um, the bills never passed. They just got stuck in stuck in some process somewhere or something. Um, 
but yeah, uh, Ohio is the first to pass it. It's, it's quite interesting. And as you mentioned there in the intro, the service is reportedly going to be offered by BitPay. Yes, uh, which offers payment in Bitcoin with a near instant bank settlement the next day. Yeah, so they acquire the Bitcoin and settle in dollars. Yeah. Uh, well, I think they can settle in more than one currency. Ooh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They do a little FX They got as well. fancy since I last looked at them. They did get fancy, but they also offer a wallet service, don't they, called Copay, which was nearly compromised it was reported yesterday when there was uh, it's the, the wallet service, which is part of BitPay's product offering. Uh, it was injected by malicious code um, into a Node.js event stream module, which had the potential to steal users' private keys. But it was it was ineffective as a hack. Um, but it does it did make me think: Do the relevant tax authorities have the appropriate technological ability to be able to handle such an event like that? Uh, you know, in a I, word, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, why I asked the question. Really, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Um, but it's uh, so it reminds a, us all that we need to be. There's a broader question, right? Yes, yeah, and your your point sure. is a good one. The broader question of if you are about to use this infrastructure, uh, you expect certain organisations of a certain size to take liability even if they fail, right? Mm. So uh, if a bank gets hacked, typically they just pay you back, right? That that they don't always, and we know that. Um, but typically, that is the route to, to resolving it. And there's liability and there's insurance and all that sort of stuff. That's not as clear in crypto. Mm. Um, and so there is an element of risk. But this, you know, I'd, I'd really love to look at the statistics inside of one of the big US exchanges or wallet providers and see how many wallet providers live somewhere remote in Ohio. Um, and is this a vote winner um, for, for them? I think BitPay uh, was founded in Georgia, actually. So that must be a bit gutting. They didn't get there first. But anyway... Oh, well, all right. Um, our, our And finally, story this week comes from Coindesk. And, um, well, it's a Spank Chain story. Well, there we uh, go. How could it not be? Uh, Spank Chain has paid Camgirl $70,000 worth of crypto in six months. So Spank Chain boasted 6,136 active users as of October and has paid roughly $72,422 in cryptocurrency. To the Coindesk uh, reporter, using the word roughly and then having a really specific number, kind of odd, but anyway. <laughs> uh, to 31 webcam models since the state uh, since the site launched in April, um, and uh, performer Molly May Meow, um, who has been camming for more than six years, said she makes much more money on Spank Chain, which only charges five percent of their earnings compared to the standard fifty percent across the industry. Um, and they're signing up around 20 performers per week. I mean, as daft as it sounds, they may have found a real market here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not the first time uh, technology has been driven by the adult industry, is it? No, no, completely not. Uh, and, and, and the other interesting thing is that, um, but but have they done it with technology or have they done it by changing the business model? Like if I launched a service that just gave people a better revenue share, would I not disrupt the market? And would I probably have seen a lot more than 6,000 active users? Like, if I had 6,000 active users after launching in April with a, the amount of press that Spank Chain has had and, what, 30 million rays, I think my VCs would be pretty pissed off at me. Um, maybe, maybe 6,000 users. Uh, but that's, I, as far as I'm aware, quite a lot more than any other uh, actual running live in production oh, with yeah. real production issues project in crypto. 
In crypto. In crypto, yes. But if you were to compare that with fintech, you would see that, you know, all right, so it, different if you're in whitelist. If you're still in whitelist and you're still, uh, you know, in alpha or beta in your product and you've only got a thousand users, fine. But if you've gone open to the public, launch, anybody can sign up and uh, you're not seeing that user growth. Uh, I think this, th this is my point. Broadly, crypto isn't getting consumer traction. And the best example of consumer traction has 6,136 active users uh, of 3 billion people on the internet. So 3 billion people on the internet? It's about, yeah, half the planet. Wow. A little more than, yeah. yeah, a little less than half. Okay. Um, Thank you, Mary Mika, for your internet trends oh, report sticking in my good brain. Good Mary Mika. Um, but I, I guess... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i positive on this story, actually. I think just because Spank Chain don't take their naming conventions of their products too seriously, mm. we shouldn't dismiss how seriously they take their projects. Mm. Um, or this, you know, the sort of cryptocurrency, the use for booty, I believe it's called in particular... <laughs> And they actually have solved a real problem because I think there was a story I read, uh, well, I read it more recently, but it was 2014 where Chase was shutting down adult performers' bank accounts. Um, and that is a decision that somebody at Chase has made because they don't like the industry that they work in. Now, this isn't illegal as far mm. as I'm aware. It's not illegal in any of the states in which they were jurisdicted at the time. Um, but they've had their accounts shut down. They lost access to their money. They were being effectively censored. Mm -hmm. And this is a way to circumvent that. Yeah, so censorship resistance, when it's in the interest of somebody who's performing something that's entirely legal, makes sense. And you see this with the marijuana mm. industry in the US as well, um, that, that people are using Bitcoin instead of cash because it gets around censorship and you don't have to A, handle cash or B, deal with the financial system that's trying to block it. I, I completely understand that. And I think that as a theme makes complete sense. What I struggle with is uh, if I had built this in some other way, um, would I have still succeeded or would I have even seen more growth? Um, so if I found another bank um, and I built this as my startup, uh, would I have been able to get further if I had a deal with the bank that that's what I did? I, I think you could. Um, my point being, I do get the point about maybe I couldn't. Maybe I couldn't have got that deal with the bank in the first place. Maybe you would be able to charge as little as five uh, percent for the performance as well. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I, don't, I, don't know. I honestly, I'm really just speculating. speculating. <laughs> We're speculating. It's not my industry, I'm afraid. But I'm generally positive on the story. I feel like they've actually found a problem. They've solved it, mm. and it's helping the people that were otherwise vulnerable while and the problem existed. It, and if that's uh, if that's a trend that can continue, then uh, we wish them well. Yep. Alrighty, um, stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, Theblockcrypto.com, which is an excellent publication for Mr. Mike Dudas and team. Um, how South Korea's second largest bank invested in a crypto exchange and shook up the market. There's a headline. Go check out theblockcrypto.com. Um, Crypto Notigas, um, Portuguese football giant sporting Lisbon consider an ICO because, you know, welcome to the party. Mike late. Lowen was supporting some of them, wasn't he? I believe so. Um, Coindesk.com, 600,000 Bitcoin miners have apparently shut down in the last two weeks. Uh, the F2 pool founder estimates. I'm guessing that's to do with the lack of profitability, although will we see the difficulty of Bitcoin adjust as a result because the hash rate has dropped, which therefore means the difficulty will fall which therefore means the amount of energy you need to expend to mine a Bitcoin decreases. So eventually Bitcoin becomes profitable again. Um, so we'll, we'll, Equilibrium. Sure we will see it hit an equilibrium, I'm sure. All right, time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. 
Twitter of the week comes from Crypto Bobby, and uh, he says, in 2017, I can buy so much unnecessary stuff with my crypto. 2018, I should have bought so much unnecessary stuff with my crypto. Um, Bless. Uh, So shout out to Crypto Bobby. Um, And then the special mention goes to Crypto Haze. This is submitted by Colin G. Platt. Um, I don't know how he submitted this from a field. Um, (laughs) uh, But this one uh, is from Arthur Hayes, and it says two motherfucking digits. Uh, Hashtag ETH. Um, And that's a shot of Kraken dropping below, I believe, 100 US dollars. Sign of the times. Winter has arrived already. Just a reminder to you all, this podcast is brought to you by the fine, fine folks at 11FS. And we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. If you want to know what we do, have a look at things like metal.co.uk, M-E-T-T-L-E.co.uk. If you're on your phone right now, check that out. That's the sort of stuff we do. If you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, subscribe button's right there. If you want the news brought to you with dulcet tones of uh, Seraphine and and, uh, many others, uh, then you've got to subscribe. And if you're already subscribed, why not throw us a review? Why haven't you done that yet? Uh, We understand you might not want to give us five stars because of Colin G. Platt, but, you know, consider it anyway. We bring you the awesome. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Sarah? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Seronimo, or you can tweet Clearmatics at Clearmatics, or you can go to clearmatics.com forward slash careers, or you can go to GitHub, github.com forward slash Clearmatics and get involved, contribute, join us. Oh, one of us, one of us. <laughs> that wasn't scary. Um, We're really nice. Uh, I got to thank our amazing production team here at 11FS uh, producer Petra who's all the way in Vegas uh, Laura Watkins who's here and smiling and of course Alex Woodhouse already so thank you Alex for catching all of the gaffes I made on today's episode and uh, generally editing us into sounding amazing and thank you for listening to Alex's amazing editing Um, we'll have more blockchain inside for you next week goodbye for now <laughs>